Well, please turn in your Bibles to Genesis 47. If you're new with us, we've been going through the life of Joseph, which started in Genesis 37. And last week in chapter 46, we ended on a cliffhanger of sorts. It's that point in a show that you end the end of the show and you're just like, I have to watch the next episode. What's going to happen? Right? And then you're up till two or three in the morning because you can't stop. Genesis is like a, a beautifully written story that just keeps you wondering what is going to happen? What is God going to do next? And today we're going to see what happens as Joseph fam- Joseph's family finally enters into Egypt. Now, we've been seeing and talking about over the last few weeks God's promises and his providence to carry about his plans and his purposes. Now, the Bible ultimately reveals that many of God's promises find their full fulfillment at the return of Christ in the new heavens and in the new earths. And because of that, our hope should be fixed there first and foremost. Yet along the way, we find that at times, God provides us with a glimpse of these promises fulfilled now in this life. We can experience job provision when we least expect it, financial security, growth in our families, favor in a new place, fellowship within the church, many of the things And the list could go on and on that we get to experience here in life that are ultimately showing us the full fulfillment when Christ returns. And though we're not always promised that those things will take place in this life, God in his loving wisdom often provides us with glimpses of the blessings we will receive in Christ forever. And the stories of the Bible operate in this manner as well. Now, if you remember, back in chapter 46, God promised Jacob that he would make him into a great nation in Egypt. Now, however, at the end of Genesis 46, in last week's passage, we see that Joseph tells his brothers to tell Pharaoh they are shepherds, which would make them an abomination to Pharaoh. And so we're left to wonder, what did they actually say to Pharaoh? And how did Pharaoh respond? So let's start now in our story in Genesis 47. And look at verses 1 through 6, where we see how God honors Joseph's plan. Notice how the scene first plays out in verses one through four. So Joseph went in and told Pharaoh, my father and my brothers with their flocks and herds and all that they possess have come from the land of Canaan. They are now in the land of Goshen. And from among his brothers, he took five men and presented them to Pharaoh. And Pharaoh said to his brothers, what is your occupation? And they said to Pharaoh, Your servants are shepherds, as our fathers were. And they said to Pharaoh, We have come to sojourn in the land, for there is no pasture for your servants' flocks 
for the famine is severe in the land of Canaan. And now, please let your servants dwell in the land of Goshen. The scene is almost exactly how Joseph described it would be. Joseph goes before Pharaoh to tell him that his family has arrived, was in Goshen, and had brought all their flocks and their herds with him. But we see that Joseph has only brought five brothers with him to see Pharaoh. What are we to make of the fact that Joseph only presents five of the brothers? Scholars have several theories as why it may be five. Some suggest they were the best of the brothers so that they wouldn't be seen as a burden upon Pharaoh. Others suggest they were the weakest so that Pharaoh wouldn't want to employ them in their army. And then there's some that suggest the language represents a mix from the youngest to the oldest so that Pharaoh could see the span of Joseph's family. Now I tell you those things, but I don't believe we're supposed to get bogged down with a detail like that. I think the point we're meant to see is that there are now five of the brothers standing before Pharaoh and he asks the all-important question, what is your occupation. Now think about this moment for a second. They have a chance to veer away from the plan. They have a chance to soften the blow for their family, to keep things a little bit more vague than Joseph wanted them to. They have the pressure of their family on their shoulders. But what we see is a full trust in Joseph's plan. They say to Pharaoh, your servants are shepherds as our fathers were. And then they go on to say they're here to sojourn in the land and they specifically ask for the land of Goshen. Now this is the moment when, as we might say in America, you could cut the tension with a knife or you could hear a pen drop. The suspense is there. What will Pharaoh say? They have just told him they are shepherds. They are an abomination to him. How will Pharaoh respond? Look again at how Pharaoh responds, or look now in verses four through six. So they said to Pharaoh, we have come to sojourn in the land, for there are no pasture for your servants, flocks, for the famine is severe in the land of Canaan. And now please let your servants dwell in the land of Goshen. Then Pharaoh said to Joseph, your father and your brothers have come to you. The land of Egypt is before you. Settle your father and your brothers in the best of the land. Let them settle in the land of Goshen. And if you know any able men among them, put them in charge of my livestock. I think this is an astonishing response from Pharaoh. As R.C. Sproul comments, the Pharaoh graciously grants the requests of Jacob's family and even puts them in charge of his livestock, establishing Jacob and his sons as court officials and thereby investing them with legal rights and protection. You see, Pharaoh doesn't completely shun them the moment he discovers their shepherds, but he is magnificently gracious to them. He gives them Goshen, which is the best of the land. Not only does he not view them as disgusting and loathsome, 
But he asked Joseph to put some in charge of his livestock, which would make them court officials. Church, do you see, this is not how you would expect someone to respond who is viewing these people as an abomination. It's out of the ordinary. And as we remember from the last chapter that it was God who was taking them into Egypt and it was God who was wanting to separate them, we see God honoring Joseph's plan. You see, this is another reminder of God's providential hand in moving Israel to Egypt and separating them as a people for himself. It's a beautiful picture of God's grace. Now let's move into our next scene in verses 7 through 10. Here I believe we see Jacob at peace and blessing Pharaoh. Look at what takes place in verses 7 through 10. Then Joseph brought in Jacob his father and stood him before Pharaoh. And Jacob blessed Pharaoh. And Pharaoh said to Jacob, How many are the days of the years of your life? And Jacob said to Pharaoh, The days of the years of my sojourning are 130 years. Few and evil have been the days of the years of my life, and they have not attained to the days of the years of the life of my fathers and the days of their sojourning. And Jacob blessed Pharaoh and went out from the presence of Pharaoh. You see, when Joseph brings Jacob into Pharaoh, the language of him standing up shows us that Jacob is so weak that Joseph has to lift him up. Yet it's Jacob who blessed Pharaoh. This weak and feeble man stands before the great and mighty Pharaoh and blessed him. This is significant enough that Jacob does this two times. Most commentators believe that this would have been a customary blessing along the lines of long live the king, but it carries significant weight because Jacob declares blessing on Pharaoh twice. You see, there's another blessing that happens in Genesis. It's the blessing of Melchizedek to Abraham. And the author of Hebrews, when he looks back on that blessing, in Hebrews 7.7 comments that even though Abraham held the promises, listen to this, it is beyond dispute that the inferior is blessed by the superior. So likewise here, Pharaoh is the king of the land, but Jacob is the heir of promise, and he blesses Pharaoh. The inferior is blessed by the superior. And then we see this interesting question, and the wording is, is even unique in the next section. And then Joseph responds in just a profound way. Pharaoh basically asks him, how old are you? It's almost like he looks at him in his weak and feeble state and says, how, how long have you lived? And Jacob responds, he's 130 years old, but that's much shorter than his father Abraham and Isaac, and his days have been few and evil. Now there's a little Egyptian history that's helpful here. For the Egyptians, the idealized age to live was 110. Those who lived this long were considered to have lived a blessed 
and virtuous life. Yet Jacob says he's lived 20 years more than this and they are few compared to his father's. And he also speaks the truth about his life. His life has been full of evil. He doesn't save face standing before Pharaoh. He doesn't say, I'm I'm doing pretty good. He doesn't soften the truth. You see, because I think as we saw at the end of last chapter, he's at peace. He's at peace to die, having most of his life being full of evil. And so he blessed Pharaoh again. I think we see Jacob unfazed by the status of Pharaoh, but at peace enough to, as the bearer of the promised blessing of God, bless Pharaoh two times. Church, this is a divinely sanctioned thing for Jacob to do, because back in Genesis 12, 1 and 2, God tells Abraham that he will bless those who bless his people. And so Jacob, even though he is weak, even though his days have been evil, he blessed Pharaoh. And this leads us beautifully into the next section in verses 11 through 28. Here we see how God blessed Israel and Pharaoh. Look at how this part begins in verses 11 and 12. Then Joseph settled his father and his brothers and gave them a possession in the land of Egypt and the best of the land and the land of Ramesses as Pharaoh had commanded. And Joseph provided his father, his brothers, and all his father's household with food according to the number of their dependents. This is a significant shift in this chapter because we see a glimpse of God's promise fulfilled. He told them, you will go into Egypt and I will make you into a great nation there. And here, Israel receives a possession in the land of Egypt. As we've seen multiple times, it's the best of the land. And then in verse 12, we see that they are abundantly provided for by Joseph. Israel is blessed. One commentator points out, they are not treated as nomads, but are given legal title to their homesteads. At this point, They have more of a legal claim to the land of their exile than they do to the land that God has promised them. Joseph provides food for his brothers, for his father, for all his father's household, according to the number of their dependents. In other words, everyone is provided with the food they desire. All the people of Israel blessed and provided for. Now, Look at the quick shift in the story to the condition of Egypt and Canaan in verse 13. Now there was no food in all the land, for the famine was very severe, so that the land of Egypt and the land of Canaan languished by reason of the famine. Do you see the point Moses is beginning to make? The famine has reached its pinnacle, and there is no more food right after we see Israel provided with food. Oh, but it gets even more clear. Notice how Moses then contrasts the position of the Egyptians to Israel in verses 14 through 19. And Joseph gathered up all the money that was found in the land of Egypt and in the land of Canaan 
in exchange for the grain that they bought. And Joseph brought the money into Pharaoh's house. And when the money was all spent in the land of Egypt and in the land of Canaan, all the Egyptians came to Joseph and said, give us food. Why should we die before your eyes for our money is gone? And Joseph answered, give your livestock and I will give you food in exchange for your livestock if your money is gone. So they brought their livestock to Joseph and Joseph gave them food in exchange for the horses, the flocks, the herds, and the donkeys. He supplied them with food in exchange for all their livestock that year. And when that year was ended, they came to him the following year and said to him, we will not hide from my Lord that our money is all spent. The herds of the livestock are my Lord's. There is nothing left in the sight of my Lord but our bodies and our land. Why should we die before your eyes, both we and our land? Buy us and our land for food, and we with our land will be servants to Pharaoh, and give us seed that we may live and not die, and that the land may not be desolate. Can you feel the despair of the Egyptians? It builds as the story moves on. The first year, they come to Joseph out of money, begging for food, and in exchange for food, they give him all their livestock. The next year, they come back to him another time, desperate again for food, and they give Joseph themselves and their land. Everything of the Egyptians is bartered for food to eat. Nothing is left in their possession. And if you haven't picked up on it yet, pay attention to the result of this then in verses 20 through 26. So Joseph brought, bought all the land of Egypt for Pharaoh. For all the Egyptians sold their fields because the famine was severe on them. The land became Pharaoh's. And as for the people, he made servants of them from one end of Egypt to the other. Only the land of the priest he did not buy, for the priest had a fixed allowance from Pharaoh and lived on the allowance that Pharaoh gave them. Therefore, they did not sell their land. Then Joseph said to the people, Behold, I have this day bought you and your land for Pharaoh. Now here is seed for you, and you shall sow the land. And at the harvest you shall give a fifth to Pharaoh, and four-fifths shall be your own as seed for the field and as food for yourselves and your households and as food for your little ones. And they said, you have saved our live, lives. May it please my Lord, we will be servants to Pharaoh. So Joseph made it a statute concerning the land of Egypt. And it stands to this day that Pharaoh should have the fifth. The land of the priest alone did not become Pharaoh's. Everything becomes Pharaoh's, everything except the land of the priests. Pharaoh's land and his livestock increased significantly. And from then on out, one-fifth, 20% of everything grown would be given to Pharaoh. That makes the vat look insignificant. Now, we might be tempted to get trapped by trying to determine whether Joseph was fair in this scenario. Don't get fooled into going down that road. For one, it's hard for us to truly remove our modern lens and look at this situation from its historical context. Secondly, in verses 23 through 25, we see that the Egyptians got a great deal out of this, and they rejoiced in this decision. But most importantly, 
Joseph's diplomacy is not the main point of this section in Scripture. Though it is commendable, I think, we see the main point clearly as we consider another shift of Moses in the narrative in verses 27 to 28. Look at what happens immediately after all of this. Thus Israel settled in the land of Egypt and the land of Goshen, and they gained possessions in it and were fruitful and multiplied greatly. And Jacob lived in the land of Egypt 17 years, so the days of Jacob, the years of his life, were 147 years. Did you notice how the story flows in chapter 47? Israel is blessed. The Egyptians are struggling. While Pharaoh is blessed, Israel is blessed greatly. Just like in verses 11 and 12, Israel dwells in the land and has possessions. But here, we also see that they were fruitful and multiplied greatly. The main point of this story is how God in his providence has blessed Israel and Pharaoh during a severe and devastating famine. You see, because this echoes the promise of Genesis 12, two through three. Listen to it again. God says to Abraham, and I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse, and in, all, in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Here we see that Israel is blessed by God, and Pharaoh is blessed for blessing Israel, and even the people of Egypt are blessed because they now have 80% of the crops instead of dying from starvation. God is pouring out blessings during this famine. This is a beautiful picture of a partial fulfillment of this promise to Abraham. Now before we look at the final verses in Genesis 47, I just want to pause to ask, where does your heart find itself in relationship to God's promises? Perhaps you find yourself waiting for what you believe he has promised to you. Maybe you find yourself on the receiving end of blessings similar to that of Israel in this moment. Or possibly you're losing hope in his promises because you don't see them tangibly in your life. You see, the truth of scripture over and over is that God blesses his people abundantly, but those blessings are not always the kind we see in this text. David was on the run for years after receiving the promise from Samuel that he would be king. The prophet Jeremiah did not see a single convert or significant change in Israel during his entire ministry. Jesus Christ did not have a place to lay his head. Paul suffered tremendously through shipwrecks, beatings, stonings. The list goes on in 2 Corinthians 11. And Israel, in a little while, is going to suffer through slavery. You see, we're not always promised physical blessings in life, but we are promised that God is working all things together for our good. And we are promised that we will be blessed. But the subtle danger in studying a passage like this is we can be lulled into thinking 
that physical blessings are everything as we see God pouring those out upon Israel and Pharaoh. And this is where I think verses 29 through 31 come in and become vitally important. Look at the interesting addition of Moses at the end of this. Verse 29. And when the time drew near that Israel must die, he called his, own, his, called his son Joseph and said to him, If now I have found favor in your sight, put your hand under my thigh and promise to deal kindly and truly with me. Do not bury me in Egypt, but let me lie with my fathers. Carry me out of Egypt and bury me in their burying place. And Joseph answered, I will do as you have said. And Jacob said, Swear to me. And he swore to him. Then Israel bowed himself upon the head of his bed. Now whenever we're studying through sections of narrative in a story and we come to a portion that seems a little out of place, one of the vital, most vital questions we can ask is why? Why is it here? Why did Moses wrap up with the life of Jacob in verse 28 to turn around and talk about this moment in his final days? Originally, honestly, I thought it was simply for chronological reasons and it fit better with 48. After all, chapters and verses were not in the original manuscripts. But as I examined this closer, I saw it significantly connecting to Israel being blessed in Egypt. Look again with me at how Moses concluded the story in verse 28. And Jacob lived in the land of Egypt 17 years. So the days of Jacob, the years of his life, were 147 years. You see, we're told that Jacob lives another 17 years of his life. Incidentally, it's the 17-year-old Joseph who was taken away from him, and he gets another 17 years. And because it's right after how blessed Israel was, it should be contrasted with the evil days of Jacob's life. And I think it's meant to be seen as a sweet final days of life. You see, Jacob was blessed himself in Egypt. Now, notice two things which highlight the importance of his request. This is a very, very important request. First, Jacob asked for Joseph to place his hand under his thigh. This is significant because it symbolizes a serious oath being made. But it's also the exact phrase Abraham used when asking his servant to go to his brother's household to find a wife in Genesis 24 too. Next, we also see that this is important because Jacob makes Joseph swear that he will do it. So as we see an important thing going on, we have to ask, what is it and why is it so important? Look at the request again in verse 30. But let me lie with my fathers. Carry me out of Egypt and do not bury me and bury me in their burial place. Why is it so important to be buried with his fathers? There's certainly a legacy to be kept in the life of Israel, 
But I think it's because the burial land was the first piece of land Abraham attained in the promised land. And I think that Jacob realized that as good as Egypt has been to him and his family over 17 years, it is not the promised land of God. It is not God's promises. And with this request, he shows Joseph and the people of Israel that Egypt, with all of its pleasures and all of its riches, are not worth comparing to the promises of God. This is why we see him bow on his staff at the end, which Hebrews 11.21 shows is an act of worship. John Calvin comments, It is a proof of great courage that none of the wealth or the pleasures of Egypt could so allure him as to prevent him from sighing for the land of Canaan in which he had always passed a painful and laborious life. But the constancy of his faith appeared still more excellent when he, commanding his dead body to be carried back to Canaan, encouraged his sons to hope for deliverance. You see, with this move, Jacob sets his hope on the promises of God and not the fleeting pleasures of this world. And he teaches his family to do the same thing. And Joseph is going to get this because at the end of Genesis, he's going to ask his brothers to carry his bones out of Egypt as well. Oh, church, this is so helpful for us to see in the midst of a passage like this. There are times when we receive great blessings in life and we praise God for those blessings. But the blessings that come in this life are not worth comparing. They are not worth comparing to the blessings we will have for all of eternity. This is not our home. This is not our home and I'm not talking about your home country back there being your home. Our home is eternity in the presence of Jesus Christ. No temporal blessing or suffering will ever compare to the joy of his presence forevermore. His promises are what we are longing for. This is why Paul in Romans 8.18 can say, for I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. And again, in 2 Corinthians 4, 17 through 18, for this light, momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. Jesus Christ came and died to give us hope of everlasting joy in the presence of God forever. Yes, we have so many blessings in this life, but we have so much more coming. When you get a chance, read through Hebrews 11 after we've gone through Genesis. And notice where the hope of the patriarchs was. And then when you get to Hebrews 12, 1 and 2, Notice where the hope of Christ was. So consider, church, as we close, where are the temporal blessings in this life in your heart? Are they everything? 
Consider whether your eyes and your heart are focused on this world or whether they are lifted up and focused on the return of Christ in suffering and in plenty. See his providence and his goodness from the pages. It is there for us to remind us that our God is faithful. Praise him. Praise him, church, for the glimpses he gives us of that faithfulness. But praise him also for the moments when he reminds us that this world is not our own. We should praise him for those as well. Please stand with me as I pray this over us and into our hearts. Our Father in heaven, make your name so great in our hearts, so great on our minds that we see the joy of your presence over everything else. God, give us eyes to see how faithful you are, how trustworthy you are, to trust in you, to trust in Christ, to trust in his atonement on the cross. To long, God, for the day that Christ returns and makes all of this new. The day when we will be forever in your presence. We want you, God. We need you. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.